0: with me to the Old Testament prophet Micah. Today we're taking a break from our studies through Numbers uh, to begin looking at some of the classic texts of Advent, speaking of the incarnation of our Savior Jesus Christ. Today we're looking at Micah chapter 5. This is the text that the religious leaders quote, When the Magi come looking for him, and they say that you will find him, probably, in Bethlehem, because that's where the prophet foretold. Micah chapter 5 today, reading verses 1 through 5. Actually stopping at the beginning of verse 5, where uh, our English Standard Version puts a break in the text there. I think that's a good place to stop, though the the text obviously continues, but we can't say everything. Though I often try, don't I? Uh, (laughs) Micah chapter 5. Today, verses uh, 1 through 5, you can find that in our CART Bibles, if you haven't yet, on page 778. Uh, Let's go to the Lord together and uh, seek him in prayer before we read this word together. Let's pray. O gracious God, our Lord and King, we thank you that you have sent your Son into the world. We thank you that you are the one who uh, remembered us in our affliction and sent a Savior to redeem us to yourself. We pray that as we read and learn about him, that you would give us faith to believe in the one whom you have sent, born into the world, crucified, dead, and buried, risen again, interceding for the saints. Help us to look to him in faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in the prophet Micah, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up, Until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, This week in Concord, I passed uh, what is becoming a familiar sight. It it was a man, probably in his mid, maybe late 60s, dressed in in somewhat uh, shabby clothes, wearing a long beard, uh, and walking in circles around the town center rotary. As he walked, he carried two flags and a very tall flagpole. And the sign on the ground next to him advertised a peace vigil. Actually, this man's name is Arthur, uh, and sometimes Arthur pops into my office to share his thoughts with me. Uh, Arthur uh, grew up in war-torn Eastern Europe. At an earlier age, he dedicated his life to the pursuit of world peace. And he has now lived and walked on every continent except Antarctica, walking and holding vigils Spreading his message and raising awareness. Because awareness, according to Arthur, is what the world really needs. If only, Arthur would tell you, if only we could understand our common human experience, if only our eyes could be opened to the fact that we're all already united, then the world would come out right. So what we need is awareness. I knew another man. His name was Ed. Uh, And he said that what we need is disentanglement. He said that in the modern world, we're all too attached to everything. We're attached to our stuff. We're attached to our desires. We're attached to our plans. We're attached to our ambitions and our grudges and uh, and all of our disappointments. And Ed would tell me that if only we could all practice the ancient wisdom of non-attachment taught by the Buddha, well, then the world would come out right. A wise pastor once told me that if you really want to know what people believe, what they care about, just ask them what they think is wrong with the world. Ask them what they think we really need, because actually everybody has some answer. And if you're paying attention this season, you will hear those answers. Your office holiday parties or your family gatherings, if, if the conversation gets beyond the niceties In the small talk, you'll hear what people think is wrong in the world. You'll hear what they think we really need. Everybody has an answer. They say, "Well, well, what we need is greater awareness. We need fewer attachments. We need better laws. We need stronger borders. We need a thriving economy. We need scientific consensus. We need more civil discourse. We need traditional morality. We need a cultural revolution. Well, the Bible has an answer to this question of what we really need. What's gone wrong in the world? And it shouldn't surprise us that the Bible's answer comes to us in the form of a person. What we really need is a shepherd. What we need is a king. Who we need is the leader that God has chosen for himself. Our passage today, as I've mentioned, is familiar because of its connections with the Christmas story. But Micah chapter 5, the Lord reveals that the answer to our deepest needs is the Savior Jesus Christ. Today in this passage, I simply want to focus on who he is and who this passage, this prophecy, says he came to be. Three points today. First, that Jesus is God's chosen king. That's our first point. Jesus is God's chosen king. The, the crux of that truth shows up in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. For me, says the Lord, one who is to be ruler in Israel. That's who he is. He's the ruler of God's people. He's the king that God has chosen for himself. Now, actually, we need to step back, because in verse 2, the Lord is setting up a contrast between the king that the Lord said he's sending and the king that the people already have. Read verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. There's a judge and there's a ruler. There's a king who is powerless and there's a king who is coming. That's a contrast in these two verses. Now, since we're jumping midstream into Micah's prophecy, you need to know that he most likely wrote these words sometime near the end of the 8th century B.C., sometime late in the 700s, when the Assyrian Empire was steamrolling the ancient Near East, when they were gobbling up rival kingdoms with terrifying ease. The Assyrians were the war machine of the ancient world. They were the most bloodthirsty, diabolically ruthless regime that anyone in the world had ever encountered. When they took over a land, they were not content merely to conquer people. They set out to eradicate them. And so they made conquered nobles dig up the bones of their ancestors so that they could be ground into powder, cutting off all connection with their past. They came into cities and they ripped open pregnant women. They separated families through exile and forced intermarriage. Their tactic was one of cultural annihilation. Their point was to make peoples cease to exist with any coherent form of unifying identity. Later in this chapter, Assyria is mentioned by name. In the section where we stopped reading, Assyria shows up. And most likely by the time that Micah first preached this prophecy, the Assyrians had already carried away the northern tribes in Israel, and now they were breathing down the neck of the capital city in the south, in Jerusalem. So, verse 1 says, Muster your troops, though daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. Destruction is knocking at the gates. And if you could have asked the Israelites, late 8th century, what does the world really need? I don't know, but I imagine someone would have said, I don't know what the world needs, but what we need is a deliverer. Someone who's looking out for us. Someone who can save us. Hey, we'd be uh, be happy with somebody who could just save himself. Because in verse 1, when it speaks of striking the judge of Israel on the cheek, that's talking about humiliating helplessness. Like a fighter who absolutely is powerless to dodge the uppercut, coming right for his chin. Now with the Assyrians outside of Jerusalem, it might remind us of the days of King Hezekiah remember that, where uh, Sennacherib surrounded Jerusalem and he shouted doom and destruction over the walls in the hearing of the people. It was embarrassing, so the the nobles in, in Jerusalem said, don't speak in the language of the people, use the language of trade, we understand you. And they said, no, 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 the people need to understand what they're in for too. You're powerless against me. It might be speaking of that time. Or it might be reaching further into the future. So it might be speaking of a king like Zedekiah. He was the king whose sons were slaughtered before his eyes were put out, and then all the people of Israel were carted away to Babylon in exile. Whether the prophecy is aimed at the calamity that's right on the horizon, or whether it's something a bit further out, the contrast between verses 1 and 2 is clear. Where the rulers of this present world are powerless to deliver God's people, God himself will provide a man to do the job. A king whom he has chosen. From you, he says, from the little town of Bethlehem, shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now fast forward seven centuries. This is still the same promise that God's people were waiting for. That's because after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., there never was another true king in Israel. The Assyrian Empire, of course, gave way to the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire, of course, fell to the Persian Empire, and the Persians to the Medes, and the Medes to the Greeks, and the Greeks to the Romans, and on it goes. It seemed that history was moving in this uninterrupted cycle of imperial exchange, one kingdom taking place of another kingdom, and still there was no king to be found in Israel. There were pretenders along the way. There were puppet kings dancing under the strings of other foreign empires, but there never was another true son of David to sit on the throne in Israel. Which is why Herod, who himself was one of those puppet pretenders, which is why Herod is so alarmed when these magi show up from the east, and they start looking for the king who was born to the Jewish people. Well, a quick check with the religious leaders, and these wise men are sent to Bethlehem, because that's where Micah said he would come from. The ruler God has chosen. It would It would take seasons of sermons to unpack it, but suffice to say that Jesus didn't turn out to be the kind of king that Herod expected. Nor was he the kind of king that the religious leaders accused him of trying to become later, 30 years later down the line when they handed him over to Pilate a rabble rouser and a, and a usurper and, and some upstart out of nowhere trying to take over the Roman Empire. He wasn't a king like that. And in fact, if your only exposure to him is this single prophecy from Micah, he might not be the king that you expect either. He never did ascend a gilded throne and lord his earthly power over his puny subjects. He never did walk into that revolving door of one empire, folding into another empire, folding into another empire, for a temporary hold on what was significant in the eyes of the world. He never did rally his troops to go and take up arms and fight to the death for some geographic piece of land. He was not the king the world expected. But actually, that's just the point. The Lord said that from Bethlehem would come forth a ruler for him a king according to God's design a leader to fulfill the plans of the Lord not the desires of the hearts of men that brings us to our second point Micah tells us that that this Messiah Jesus as we know him from the New Testament Jesus is God's chosen king he also tells us that he is God's ancient promise point number two God's ancient promise We've been dancing around the the significance of this town of Bethlehem, so we might as well get into it. And, And the significance of Bethlehem is that it was utterly insignificant. Too little to be among the clans of Judah, it says and it was it was true actually it was a kind of place that was quite literally too small to show up on the map so if you turn back to the book of Joshua and you find where they're dividing the land among the tribes for the inheritance for the tribe of Judah there are 113 cities with their villages named and bethlehem doesn't show up it's too small it's barely a zip code It's maybe a township. It's the kind of rural outpost nobody knew about and nobody cared about. There might be a sign when you rolled up to Bethlehem that said, welcome to Nowheresville. Population, who cares? The point of Bethlehem is that it was entirely unimportant. At least it had been until the story of that earlier king that God had chosen for himself from the town of Bethlehem. You remember the background, I hope. It happened while the people of Israel were tired of being kingless. They were tired of being pushed around by all of these unwashed unbelievers all around them all the time. What they needed was a leader like the rest of those people. What they needed was a king. More than anything else, that's what the world needs. A king in Israel, they thought. So give us a king like the nations, they asked the Lord. And he did. He gave them a king who fit their stereotypical idea of what a king was supposed to look like. Did you know that Saul, the son of Kish, is the only Israelite in the entire Bible noted for his exceptional height? Here they are, surrounded by these Philistines, these giants among men, led out by their champion Goliath. First Samuel chapter 9 verse 2 says there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than the son of than Saul the son of Kish from his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people. Lord give us a king like the nations like he'll do. We want that. We want the big man on campus. We want the ruler who is tall and handsome and strikingly impressive. We want a ruler that if they had them, the pagans would even be proud to have that man as a king. And so the Lord gave him to him. But then you remember Saul's downfall. Because even though men loved to follow Saul, Saul never learned to follow the Lord. He had what we sometimes call an unteachable spirit. He had the kind of disposition that will not bend, even when confronted by God's prophetic word. He was determined to move in his own direction, to seek his own importance, to set his own agenda, and in the end, the Lord rejected him. And before the smoke even cleared, I mean, while that handsome man was still on the throne... 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. It seems like a long way down a rabbit hole, but... If you were an Israelite in the time of Micah, and you heard the prophecy in chapter 5, you would have thought of that red-faced shepherd boy, David, all over again. It has David written all over it. Go back to Bethlehem, says the Lord, where I have chosen a king for myself. A ruler, by the way, who's coming forth, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. That's the second half of verse 2. There are two ways that we can interpret that language uh, of ancient days. One is by reference to what we sometimes loosely call eternity past. The metaphysicist among you will be angry at me later. That's okay. Eternity past. Christ's pre-creation, pre-existence, maybe. And so the New American Standard, if you have that in front of you, it says that his goings forth are from days of eternity. Grammatically, that's a, that's a fine way to handle it. It works. And from our vantage point, we tend to gravitate in that direction because it seems to confirm the other testimony of Scripture that there was not a day when the Son was not. He is the preexistent eternal creator. Isaiah tells us that he is mighty God, everlasting Father. John says, in the beginning was the word. It's true. The problem is that when Micah says from ancient days, he could also have in mind a specific time in human history but you know like like a long time ago like like really really old days that's that's what it seems that he means if you turn over just one page to Micah chapter 7 you'll see this Micah chapter 7 verse 14 Micah chapter 7 verse 14 the prophet prays lord shepherd your people with your staff jump to the bottom of the verse shepherd your people as in the days of old. The, the phrase there in the Hebrew, it shows up differently in the English, the phrase there in Hebrew is the same. may olam, from days of eternity, from days of ancient past. But then verse 15 explains exactly what he means, by days of eternity. Verse 15, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. What does it mean? Well, it means that for Micah, ancient days could very likely be a specific time in Israel's glorious past redemption history. What we might call the the golden years of God's dealing with his people. And it seems that that actually is what's going on here. With all this David language swirling around in Micah chapter 5, it seems that that is what he's getting at. That this goes back to what God has done before. As if the Lord is telling his people, do you remember how it happened so long ago? Do you remember when it seemed like everything had gone wrong and the whole world was going black? Remember how I provided exactly what you needed from the last place you ever would have looked. The youngest son from the smallest family from the obscurest town in the backwater of Bethlehem. But there was a king for me, says the Lord a leader to shepherd his people, and all of it is working together to convince God's suffering people that just as he was able to do it back then, so also he's able to do it now. That becomes dramatically important when you keep reading in Micah chapter 5. Because verse verse 3 tells us that the people are about to enter a period of time, which actually turned out to be a quite long period of time, where it will appear that God is not doing anything. Verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up. He'll hand them over. He will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Do you hear it there? It is advanced notice of uninvolvement. That's how it will look, from where they stand. The Lord will give up his people. He'll hand them over into the power of their enemies. And from every earthly vantage point, it will appear as if the game is all played out and the time for Israel is over. The Lord is going to give them up. And Israel's going to fall to Babylon, and Babylon's going to fall to Persia, and you already know the rest of that story. One kingdom will give way to another, and the Lord is telling them now, before it happens, I'm going to take you, and I'm going to throw you head first into that raging current, and it's going to carry you downstream for a season, for a time, until, until, The king that God promised is born into the world. He's telling them now, before it happens, so that they would be aware, so that they would remember God's promise. He who raised up a king for the nation in ancient days will also do it again when the time is right. And Galatians tells us that that's what he did in the fullness of time, it says. The longing of God's people had, had risen to a peak in the time that the wisdom of God, before the foundations of the world, had predetermined. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the time was right, He sent Him. He sent His chosen king, He sent His ancient promise. He sent his faithful shepherd. That's our third point today. Jesus is God's faithful shepherd. Verses 3 and 4. When the Savior is born into the world, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Now, if it just so happens that words like strength and majesty are not the first things that come to your mind when you think of shepherds of Israel, you're probably not alone. Especially if you've been around the church for any number of Christmases. By now, you've heard the old tales and you remember the stories. You get used to being reminded of how low and despised the shepherds of Israel were. By the time you've made it through 15 sermons on Luke chapter 2, you get the point. Shepherds are dirty, they're smelly, they're unscrupulous individuals, they are ceremonially defiled, they are socially unreliable. One modern scholar put it this way, he said, in general, shepherds were dishonest and unclean. They represent the outcasts and the sinners for whom Jesus came. Now, the thing is that that makes for pretty interesting Christmas sermons, but it also overplays the point a bit. It's true, of course, that uh, that shepherds in Israel were among the lower classes, but not because they were unclean, just because they were blue-collar, really. They were men with, with rough hands instead of advanced degrees. They were the salt-of-the-earth types, and as it does in every culture at every time, socially speaking, that put them nearer to the bottom than it did to the top. And so when the Lord made his famous covenant with David, he began by reviewing his undeserved mercy. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. The message is that by the grace of God, David has made a giant leap from the bottom to the top, from the sheepfold to the throne room. So yes, shepherds were what white-collar people today uh, euphemistically call a humble people. But there was nothing undignified about being a shepherd in Israel. There's nothing unclean about being a shepherd in Israel. If you think back over the testimony of Scripture, many of the most influential, most important, most godly men that we can find in the pages of the Bible were keepers of sheep. It makes you think of Abraham, with his flock so large that he and Lot had to settle and go in different directions, essentially establish different colonies and, and settlements. It makes you think of Abraham. Makes you think of his sons, makes you think of uh, of Jacob, makes you think of Moses, makes you think of David, actually. And in a host of other Psalms beyond famous number 23, the Lord himself is identified as the great shepherd of his people. There's nothing undignified with being a shepherd. In the scriptures, that means that when we look at Micah chapter 5, and we find that this coming king will stand to shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, that is telling us something amazing and startling. It's saying that here is one who will provide for and protect God's people as only God himself can provide for and protect his people. Here is one who's coming to be God's perfect representative, his surrogate shepherd, the very extension of God's gathering, protecting, and grace-giving arm. Here is the one who will perfectly supply all that his people need, the one who can defend them from every enemy. Here is the one, says verse 5, who will himself be the peace of his people we might say, all they ever really needed. Now here's the point where we need to do a bit of thinking from this side of the cross to arrange the timeline in our minds. That's because, of course, after the days of Micah, one empire rolled into another. Assyrians gave way to the so on and the so forth. By the time the Magi came looking for Jesus in Bethlehem, the enemies that Micah wrote about were nothing but nightmares in the past. And that means that we have at least two options. Option one is to say that God's word has failed. that The prophet spoke a message, and it returned void. One scholar said the message of Micah was doomed to a literal non-fulfillment. That's option one. Option two, I think the better option. Option two is to conclude that what God was doing was actually much larger than the people of Micah's day might have imagined. Option two says that bloodthirsty as Assyria was, they really were never the primary enemies that God was coming to deal with. Option two says that there is a question far worse than exile in Babylon, that the Savior was coming to answer when he came. But then actually, that's what the Lord has already told the people he was doing. Here in this passage, something bigger than just Assyria. You saw the contrast, didn't you? Verse 3, the Lord said, I'm going to give you up. Verse 4, he said, I'm going to gather you together. Verse 3, the Lord said, I'm going to hand you over. Verse 4, the Lord said, I'm going to save you forever to the ends of the earth. By the work of the shepherd, I'm going to deliver you from the foe who is too big for you to face. And you read those and you, you wonder that if our earthly enemies are the greatest threat against us, how can those two statements make any sense at all? If Assyria really is... The enemy, then to hand over his people is to lose the contest. It is to give up the battle before the fighting even begins. Then again, if the Assyrians and if the Romans If our entanglements and and all of our warmongering, if all of our immorality, if all of our afflictions are really just symptoms of a much deeper disease, then it's entirely possible that the Lord has provided a king for himself who can win a victory greater than any of our earthly answers could ever touch. So in the New Testament, we read that Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And everybody who's ever read John chapter 10 scratches their head and they say, how in the world is that supposed to work? What good is a shepherd who lays down his life? How can you give yourself over and still deliver your people? How can you give yourself up and still keep them safe? Jesus continues. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I've received from my father. It's not a theological trick. It's not some metaphorical prophetic sleight of hand. Jesus was saying that he had come to conquer an enemy greater than Assyria. He came to answer a question deeper than death. But in order to do that, he had to take our sin upon himself. That is, after all, what is really wrong with the world. It's where our alienation and our pride and our backbiting all come from. It is the plague that leads to death, both physical and eternal. Sin is the wall that separates the creator from his creation. Sin is the wedge that divides humanity from holiness that leads to slavery to self and hatred of the things of God. And Jesus was saying that he came into the world to deal with that enemy. In order to give us peace, he would have to carry our sin. In order to deliver us, he would have to give himself up. And that's what he did. He came to be God's chosen king. He came to fulfill God's ancient promise. He came to be the faithful shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He's the one that we really need. By the grace of God, he's the one who came. And we can know him and trust him and find life in his name today. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for sending your Son into the world to be the Savior of sinners. We thank you that he is the one who delivers us from sin and hell and all of our iniquity. We pray, Lord, that you would give us faith in him, not only this day, but cause us to persevere until the end, when all your ancient promises are fulfilled in him. And we behold the one for whom our souls desire. Help us, Father, to walk with you and trust in your perfect plan and your timing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.